Welcome to the Crossing Church Sermon Podcast. Thank you for listening. We're glad you've connected with us. Our hope is that God speaks to your heart in a new way through this message. If you're new to the Crossing Church, please feel free to reach out to us by visiting our contact page or by paying us a visit. We would love to meet you. This week's sermon podcast begins in three, two, one. We are starting a new series called Eight, Eight Words That'll Change Your Life. And I was thinking about the greatest chapters or the greatest books, you know, in the Bible as we headed up to uh, this time. And uh, if, if I would ask you, write down a piece of paper what your favorite book, what your favorite chapter in the Bible is, I bet you a lot of people here would say Psalm 23, right? Yeah. Did you memorize that when you were like eighth? Right? A lot of people, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. Gets near the end. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Remember? And some people look at Psalm 23 and they say, you know what, if I, if I had one, one book, one chapter, one whatever, it'd be that. A lot of people look at Isaiah 53, 800 years before Christ. The prophet Isaiah wrote this. He said, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are we're healed. And you look at Isaiah 53 and you say, my goodness, that's... That's the gospel in the Old Testament. John 3, for God so loved the world. He's, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, the guy who should have known, but he didn't know. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. John 15 through 17, fantastic th- three chapters. Maybe the best, you know, clumped three chapters in the Bible. Many people would say that. But you know, although all scripture is God-breathed and profitable, there are certain sections that stand out especially over centuries and centuries to God's people. And I think standing above them all is the book of Romans. Ray Stedman said it's the most powerful human document that has ever been penned. John Piper said, Which of us who has tasted the goodness and glory of God in this great gospel does not count the book of Romans precious beyond reckoning? There is no greater exposition of the gospel of God than the book of Romans. Donald Gray Barnhouse, a luminary, a towering figure in the United States two generations ago. In the 40s was when he was in his heyday. Donald Gray Barnhouse said, Every movement of revival in the Christian church has been connected with the teachings set forth in the book of Romans. And yet, if you took the book of Romans and you said, Which is the greatest chapter? Many great chapters. You know what? My answer would be, it would be, guess, Romans 8. In fact, I would say that if I was ever thrown into prison, or if you were ever thrown into prison, they said you could have one chapter of the entire Bible, and I'm giving you the whole Bible, just one chapter. You should say, give me Romans 8. Because within the 39 verses of Romans chapter 8, you're going to find the answer to questions like, how can a righteous God receive sinful men and women without compromising his own holiness? How does that whole thing work? Why do I do wrong things even though I really want to do what's right? What happens when our prayers go out? How are our prayers received in heaven? How can we say things work out for good when I look at my life and I say, you know what, there's a lot of mess. There's a lot of mess in my life. How can I say everything works out for good? How can I escape sin that right now I am presently trapped in and and go on and live a holy life? If God loves me, why do I suffer? 
so much. What's the whole role of suffering in the life of a believer? Should sin in my life cause me to question whether or not I'm loved by God? See, those questions and a whole lot more questions we're going to be answering over the next eight weeks as we study Romans chapter 8. So let's get started, okay? I recently read a story of a man who was raised in the religious life, we like to say. You know, it was almost the time the, the nurse cleaned him up, you know, when he was born and laid him on his mother's breast. This guy, his future was kind of laid out for him. He went to religious schools, and he was literally one of those rare kids who from the time, you know, he was just a toddler, knew what he was going to do. You know, today, you go to college, and, you know, I think the average is three changing majors, right? Is that, it? I think it's three in there, and you know, you're starting down here, and mom and dad don't want to do this, and well, yeah, sorry, do this, now. and you know what, it, that seems to be the norm right now, nobody graduates in four years, it's five years, or you know, sometimes more, this guy wasn't handicapped like that, he knew from as long as he could remember that he was going to be in the religious life, and he proved to be an excellent student, and he soon became a leader, frankly, he was feared if he got in his way, or followed if you subscribe to his doctrinal focus. Now, long story, I'm not going to go through the whole thing. Through a long series of events, I was reading his story. He was introduced to Christ and was converted. And he had one of those testimonies. You know one of those testimonies where the guy's in the mafia, you know, and he used to rub people out, and then all of a sudden he finds Christ. You're going, oh, my goodness, what a great testimony. You've heard those, right? Okay, and you're going... I don't even want to mention mine compared to that, right? Even though we've said this many times, and I know still a lot of you don't believe it, your conversion, those of you who are in Christ, was just as miraculous for many, many reasons. But, you know, we don't want to go up against the great, great story. This guy had one of those great, great stories. I mean, you hear his story, and you're like, I'm not sure I want to tell my story next to this one, okay? That was the kind of guy he was. And, um, but he came to Christ... And his life just basically completely changed. And he went back to the Bible, which he knew. He already knew the Bible. But he went back to the Bible, now studying it with different eyes, right? Now studying it as a converted man. And everything looked different. Everything was different. He eventually found his way into the mainstream of Christian-loving, Bible-believing people. And soon became a leader there in his brand new world. And he was not considered a guy who was very charismatic. He had a number of health issues, according to many accounts. Yet, yet, he was a truly humble man whose words carried a power that people who heard him could not deny. He was really blessed, and he was a blessing to many. He was doing amazing work for the Lord. He planted a number of churches. His teaching schedule would be considered by most mortal men oppressive, absolutely oppressive. Aside from that, he managed to keep up with an enormous, enormous list of folks that he had met along the way in his ministry, continuing to pour himself into their lives. Before the present age of instant communication, where you could bang out a text message or an email, he would write to many, many people, extensive ministry of correspondence. And in addition to all that, he lived in a part of the world where he was persecuted for his faith. He was tortured on several occasions. He spent many, many months in jail, deprived, it says in one account, of even a blanket in freezing temperatures. Yet what most people would never have guessed about him was that he was a conflicted man. Don't get me wrong. He loved God. In fact, he would read the words of Scripture, and he would say to himself, 
over and over and over again. This is what I want to be. This is the kind of man I want to be. He would read about David. David was called a man after God's own heart. He says, I want to be a man after God's own heart. I want to have the words of God so ingrained on my heart and in my life that when people look at me, they don't give glory to me. They give glory to God. That's the man I want to be. But his reality was often very different. Although he was truly a loving man, he, on a pretty regular basis, knowing he should love everyone, more times you know, than he would care to admit, didn't love everyone. Because he was so smart, he was so disciplined, he was so capable, he would often become irritated with those who learned at a much slower pace. Never had that problem. I've had many problems. I've never had that problem. He always would look at people that lagged behind and it's like, come on, come on, let's get going. In fact, often he just couldn't understand the people he was even ministering to. Even though they were brothers in Christ, they understood, they got it. He couldn't figure out how they could see certain things through different eyes and have different interpretations and kind of have so many, so many questions. He knew what the word of God told him about such things, patience and love and concern and kindness. But it got to the point where the wonderful words of God, words of truth, words that governed his life, almost seemed to scream out at his divided heart from the pages before him and seemingly at times mock him. Absolutely mock him. Sometimes in quiet moments he wondered if he would ever, ever, ever be the man that he longed to be. But one day he sat down and wrote to a group of Christians who were meeting in the ancient city of Rome to share some of his thoughts. You may know by that little clue that the man I'm speaking about is the great apostle Paul. A man who would be on any historian's and is on every historian's top 10 list, secular or sainted, of world changers, people who simply went out and in the years that they had changed the world, men who simply redirected the course of history. Now, in the letter that he wrote to the Roman church, he said many things, yet three themes, as I'm looking at it, kept coming out again and again and again, and they kept coming out again and again in chapter 8 that we're going to be looking at it. And if you look close, his overall message initially was really kind of a bummer. It was really bad, and if that depressed you, as he continued to preach, it got worse. It went from bad to worse. Uh, but then all of a sudden, it took a turn, and it got good, and then finally ended up great. Bad. Mankind stands condemned before a holy and majestic God. Worse, there is no mechanism in place where he can save himself from condemnation. Good. God's provided a way where there seemed to be no way to set men and women free. And great, great, the freedom he brings can begin right now and touch every area of our lives. And the thing is, everybody on planet Earth, as I was thinking about it, everyone on the planet from heaven's perspective can be found somewhere in those four categories of understanding. And the thing is, the great apostle did find freedom because heaven's perspective became his perspective. And heaven's perspective if it ever becomes our perspective, will really set us free. When heaven's perspective 
becomes our perspective. We will be free. Well, he started off, and he starts off in in chapter 8. doesn't sound like he does, but he does, saying, you know what? Things are bad. We stand condemned. In fact, verse 1 says, therefore, hold on. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Wait a minute. You're just saying the opposite. Well, you know what? We got to go back, actually, because whenever you see therefore in the English translation, what does it mean? It's therefore something. He's summing up. He said something before. So you got to really go back to Romans chapter 1 at the beginning of the book to see what he's talking about. And that word condemnation right there, which he also uses throughout the book, kata krima, it's a, it's a compound word, kata, down, against, krima, judgment. There is a judgment against someone. There's a judgment against the whole human race. God has come down, in a sense, on someone or something. Some have simply translated in the English, and I actually like this translation, doom. <laughs> That's the translation, doom. Evidence has been brought forth. This is what it's saying, what this word is saying. Evidence has come forth. A sentence has been pronounced based on an investigation, and punishment is soon going to be applied. A guilty verdict has been rendered, and soon there's going to be a price to be paid. The emphasis on this word, wherever you see it, is on punishment. That's coming. It's down the pike. You could see it. Well, what do you mean, doom awaits me? For what? Well, Paul talked about it back, as I said, in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, and let me just give you a little running commentary very quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. He says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the wrath of God, doom, that's the doom we're talking about. That's the verdict, folks. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people. And here it is. Here is why we face eternal doom. Who, listen, suppress Suppress the truth by their wickedness. What is the truth? What is the truth? The Bible says that the truth is an accurate picture of who you are. In fact, the apostle James, remember in James in the New Testament? He said, you know what? You need to look into the mirror of truth. He's talking about the word of God. Because when you look in the mirror, basically what we want to hear is mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the first one of all? You, you, you lovely, gorgeous creature. That's what we want to hear. But see, a mirror doesn't lie. A mirror tells you exactly. A mirror gives you an accurate picture. Why does it give you an accurate picture? What good is an accurate picture? Well, so you could recalibrate, reassess, act, come to right conclusions. This is what the truth does. And in the end, if we have the truth, it'll set us free. Well, the opposite. What's the opposite of truth? Lies? Yes. Lies is the opposite of truth. Everybody knows that. You know what lies does? Lies keep you in bondage and they ensure that you're never going to find correction. So what, what is Paul saying that we are suppressing? What is the wickedness he's talking about? Verse 19 says this, Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. See, men and women are suppressing the knowledge of God himself, which, if welcomed, will flood their life with truth and light. 4, verse 20, since the creation of the world from the very beginning he's talking about, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. In the natural order of things and in our hearts, we can know God. We look into the sky. We're having this, what is it called? The blood moon tonight, right? 
We look at something like that. Everyone's getting all excited. They're buying cameras. They're going out. Hopefully, it's not going to be cloudy tonight. We could all watch it. We look at stuff like that. We see what's happening in nature. We understand something about the symmetry and the organization of nature and even the universe. We know that God is organized. We know that he is. We can know a lot of things about God just by going outside and opening our eyes. What did the psalmist say? The psalmist said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky displays his handiwork. Day after day, it speaks out. Night after night, it reveals greatness, his greatness. We can see that by just observing. There is no actual speech. There is no actual word. Nothing is heard, and yet God and the presence of God echoes throughout the earth, and it carries to the most distant horizon. But you know what he's saying, Paul is saying? The suppression, remember we're talking about suppressing? He's saying men and women have suppressed the truth of God that is absolutely plain to them. God also gives us a conscience that we can know something about him and understanding that some things are wrong and some things are right. I remember years ago, our oldest daughter, Caitlin, she was little, and she and Marianne passed a magazine rack at a store, and there was a woman, this is, this is years ago, who had no top on. She was covering her breasts with her hands. And Caitlin looked at Marianne, and she said, Mommy, that woman should be ashamed. Now, that's right. She should be. And even a little child knew that. See, she knew that. But now, what do we do? We suppress that knowledge and that understanding. We call it liberating. We call it self-determination. We call it freeing. You know, if you, if you look at history, how many times do you read in history, if it wasn't for this one guy who showed up at this one time, you know, and it was almost, it seems like a mistake. What a coincidence. Isn't it amazing? The whole, all of history would have changed again and again and again. We see God even working in history. We see God's transcendence, his self-sufficiency, his eternality, his power, his goodness, his hate for evil. It can be comprehended through those things. They impart necessary truths of God, his hate of sin. But we know what? We do need special revelation. You know, we need to understand about the atonement, to really, really know him as he is. But yet we're at without excuse. In verse 21, it says, For although they knew God through nature, conscience, and history, they didn't glorify him as God, nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And when the knowledge of God is suppressed, and truth is suppressed, instead of increasing light, Instead of increasing light, we descend into darkness until one day there is no light, there is no truth, there is no understanding, and we are without hope. So the chief aim, you know what it becomes in a culture like that? Pacifying ourselves, entertaining ourselves, finding new ways to whistle as we walk past the graveyard. There's hardly any passage which so clearly shows what happens to man and to cultures when he leaves God out of his reckoning. It's not so much that God sends condemnation on man as man brings condemnation on himself when he gives no place for God in his scheme of life and his scheme of things. When a man banishes God from his life, he becomes a certain type of man. And that certain type of man is described in Romans chapter 1. And the remainder of the chapter, and I'm not going to read it, it's a catalog of brokenness in body, and in mind, much of which is now celebrated in our culture. Homosexuality, greed and ruthlessness masquerading as business acumen, open relationships would destroy the fabric of the nuclear family, free speech, which we all love, but for many people, the goal is to injure and to harm. Envy and hatred, which at times finds 
itself under the cover of the rubric of justice and fairness when it has nothing to do with those things and it's really just trying to hide an evil heart with evil motivations. The many expressions of the brokenness of men and women who have suppressed the truth, held the truth of God down is in Romans chapter 1. And you know what it says? The saddest verse in all of the scriptures says this, God gives them over to the things that champion and are celebrated. They champion and celebrate in their minds. Things that do not need to be celebrated, but need to be redeemed by the grace of God. And in verse 32, it says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but approve those who practice them. Paul is giving a terrible picture of what happens when men deliberately banish God from their lives. It has disastrous effects. Bad news. Bad news. I stand condemned. That is heaven's perspective, and it's the first step, the first step of being free. Because when heaven's perspective becomes our perspective, we can be free. Second, goes from bad, remember I said it goes from bad to worse? Worse, I cannot save myself. The answer, obviously, you would think by reading some of the things, if you read Romans chapter 1, the answer is just to stop, right? Okay, this is bad, this is, you know, I will be condemned. Stop doing it. And, 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 you know, if you stop doing it, then God's not going to condemn me and everything's, I'm in God's good graces, right? Except in Romans chapter 8, it doesn't say that. And the reason it doesn't say that is because it comes after Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is probably the clearest picture of, I don't know, maybe you and I. It says this. This is Paul writing. This is the great apostle. This is the one who changed, went out and changed the world. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who does it, but it is sin living in me. For I know the good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Now listen, when I was growing up, uh, I was told that this, the section we just read, that this was a picture of Paul before he became a Christian. And the theory went like that because it couldn't possibly be Paul. I mean, he's saying, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin. How could that possibly be? The guy's a Christian. I mean, he's a great Christian, great missionary. God is blessing in unparalleled ways. And he says, I'm a prisoner of the law of sin. Really? Really? So I see why many people have said, you know, this is Paul back before the Damascus Road experience. This is Paul before he became a Christian, before he figured it all out. You know what? But here's the scary part. When they used to tell me that, when I, they said about Romans 7, yeah, this is Paul before he became to know the Lord. This is him when he was a Pharisee. This is him when he was just trying to follow the law and trying to do all these things. The scary part when I used to hear that is that that's how I felt. You know, I read Romans 7. And I said, that's me. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm kidding myself. Could I be kidding myself? 
If this is Paul prior to his conversion, and this is a description of me, then you know what? I'm not free of condemnation. I'm in a lot of trouble. (laughs) Yet, there was that pesky verse in chapter 7, verse 22. 722 says this. This is Paul. This is Paul who's writing this whole thing. He says, for in my inner being, I what? I delight in God's law. See, Paul, when push came to shove and he sat down in the quietness of his heart, he says, but I love God's law. When I reach scripture, I want to be that person. I recognize this is truth. I, I see the truth all too clearly. But when I was growing up, the problem with me And I have to tell you, frankly, right now, it's true of me. Also, I only all too clearly also see my failures standing right beside my desire to be that kind of man. I see them together. Like there's this big battle. Yet, his desire to please God was undeniable. I wish back then I had read, gone into chapter 8, because all the time I would look at chapter 7 and freak out. It was like, huh. And then if I just read a few more verses, because in chapter 8, verse 7, it says this. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. What? Nor can it do so. That means, Paul says, until the Holy Spirit comes in and changes your heart, you know what you're going to do? You're going to hate the law of God. You may not say you hate the law of God, but anytime you look at the law of God and you say, well, that's, you know, I know that's, that's, that's for back then. See, what you're really saying is I hate the law of God. But a heart where the Spirit of God has now entered into, it loves the law of God. It may have problems following, but it loves the law of God. He said, in my inner being, I delight in the law of God. What he's saying is this, I'm a Christian, and yet sometimes I feel like a slave to sin. Now, there are some circles in some churches uh, that say, if you're a Christian, They say that if you're a Christian, you're really not going to have a huge struggle with sin anymore. Big parts of our brothers and sisters, okay? They say that struggling with sin and and temptation is not the lot of the normal Christian life. It's not the way it works. Yes, you will sin every now and then in a minor way, but mostly you're going to go from victory to victory. All you got to do is turn on the television tonight, folks, about 11 o'clock, and just just go down the cable. You're going to find a lot of people like this. A lot of guys, you know, I mean, it's victory. They start out with a joke, and then it goes hilarity after that. And you know what? The Christian life is victory, victory, and, 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 it, and it's all, you know, I'm, I'm looking at them and listening to them. I'm going, that's not my experience. My experience is Romans 7, and yet I desire to be God's champion. Often I do sin. I do say that word. I do feel repulsed by another ethnic or racial group. I lie to someone to save face. I bow down to lesser gods. I see myself doing it, and I say, why are you doing that? You know better. You love the law of God. But I find myself pulled. Anybody else? Listen, if being a Christian means that I'm always dwelling in the rarefied air of high plateau living, as some say, which only infrequently includes the failures of the flesh and the failures of the will, what's going to happen is you're going to come to certain conclusions. There's only a few things that you can happen. If that's what you think is the normal Christian life, i got to tell you, you're either going to conclude that the church I'm coming to, whether it's the crossing or anybody else, that church is out to lunch. Okay, they are ridiculous, and at some point you're going to say, you know, i got to get out of here. These people are crazy. Or you're going to say, now maybe that church isn't ridiculous, but I'm ridiculous. 
I'm so broken. I'm so shattered. Coming here only makes me feel worse. But you know what? I got a lot of friends now. I'm, you know, I'm serving on this team and that team. I think I'm going to stay. And I know I'm going to be miserable, but I'm going to stay. Yeah, you could do that. Or you may say, you know what's ridiculous? Christianity is ridiculous. It promises peace. It promises new life. You know, where temptation and greed and pride and evil and fear slowly recedes out of my life until it's gone forever, but it delivers none of the above. And it doesn't help by trying harder. In fact, as I try harder, Paul seemed to understand that in Romans 8, didn't he? Beginning of Romans 8. As I try harder and I look at the law of God, it's almost as if don't think of the, you know, don't think of the elephant in the room, don't think of the elephant in the room, don't think of the elephant in the room. What are you thinking about? Think about the elephant in the room, of course. And it almost looks back at me and mocks me. So Paul understood that. That's why he comes to the conclusion in verse 24 of chapter 7. What does he say? What a wretched man I am. (laughs) Ever feel like that? Ever feel like a wretched man or woman? Ever say to yourself, how much more of a screw-up can I possibly be? Do you ever say that to yourself? You know? What a wretched man I am. Wretched at the root. You know what it means? The root word for, for the Greek word in wretched? It means carrying a lot of weight. So in other words, you got two 50-pound packs that you got around your hips like this, and you go life, and you cook, and you go to your work, and you, you go to church, and you do everything, you, and you're just like this all the time. She says, my knees, man, they're going to pop out pretty soon. I just can't, I can't do it. This is so burdensome. What a wretched man I am. Then he asks, after saying that, and you come to that, and you know what? If you ever closed the sermon after that, everyone would go out and kill themselves. If you ever said, you know what? Oh, and what a wretched man, and let's go live as Paul lived, and it's like, what the heck is that? Right away in the same verse, he says this. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Who, who is going to rescue me from this existence of living death? Verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. And here is where the bad begins to turn good. Bad news, I stand condemned. That's heaven's perspective. Worse news, I can't save myself and trying to obey the law and trying to obey the model of God's holiness and use Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? Well, you know what? Jesus would do this, but I ain't doing that. You know, I mean, that just that happens in about 10 minutes when you, when, when you leave, right? I can't save myself. Bad news, worse news. But now we come to the good news. God provided a way whereby I can escape condemnation. Verse 3, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What this is saying is that when God looks at you, Christian, listen, when God looks at you, he sees Christ. You may have the same face on, but you know what? It's like you're looking. I saw a Star Trek thing I, I, for about 10 minutes now. I was watching an old Star Trek, and it was since this alien and this alien woman looked different to every one of the guys. You know, it was like a long lost love. Did you see it last night? Long lost love. And every time she, she showed up, she had a different face on. And it was like, wow, that's weird. You know, I, I didn't watch it. I said, that's enough. So I, I didn't watch the end of it. I don't know what happened. But it, it's kind of like we have our face, and God looks at us, but he doesn't see our face. He doesn't see John, Sue, Mary, Sam. You know what he sees? He sees Jesus when he looks at us. That's what he sees. It means, for example, when it says that in, in th- 3 through 4, uh, that he treats you as if you died for your sins. 
as if you paid the penalty. You've paid for all of them. He treats you as though you've been raised again. He treats you as if you've done everything Jesus Christ has done. Now, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21, it says this. Great, towering verse. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. God made him sin who knew no sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. That means on the cross, he treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. Do you see? Do you see? He treated him as if he had done every disgusting, miserable thing that you have ever done in your entire life, and all of us put together in the whole world together, and from the first man and woman to the last one that will be here. He took that, and you know what? God looked at him and he said, you did it. You're the guilty one. And it says that the father poured out his wrath on the son. Now, Paul understood this concept, and he said, if you don't get this concept, you don't get Christianity. Because this is how Christianity is different than any other religion. Any other religion. And he said in Colossians, he wrote to the church of Colossians in chapter 3, in verse 2, he said this. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You know what he's saying? You know what Paul was saying? He's saying, that's you up there. That, that is you up there. You're in Christ. It's a status he's talking about. He didn't just die for you. He didn't just die and suffer everything you're supposed to suffer. He obeyed everything you were supposed to obey. That means you're not just pardoned when you trust him. You don't just get the negative part of the record. You get the positive part of the record too. And that is glorious beyond understanding. It doesn't just accrue to you the benefits of his suffering, but also the benefits of his perfect obedience Therefore, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, here it is. There is now what? No condemnation for those who are in Christ. How could there ever be condemnation? What could you possibly do to lose God's pardon? What? For what the law was powerless to do, and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. Because of our sin, we weren't able to save ourselves through obeying the law. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so God condemned sin. Jesus said, I did not come into the world to condemn, but to do what? To save the world. He said to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Because he did not come to condemn, but was condemned himself. We can be set free. He didn't come to condemn sinners. He came to condemn sin. Therefore, it says, when you become a Christian, you're not condemned. There's no more punishment. The punishment is taken away. God has forgiven you. You are pardoned. I would say that's probably not news to a lot of people here. You said, tell me something new, Pastor Tim. We get it. We've heard that before. You've preached on this many, many times in different ways and different passages. You've always heard, you know, when I believe in Jesus, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. That means that when I believe in Jesus, I confess my sins, I'm not condemned. Yeah, we get it. That's a wonderful thing. Of course, it's a wonderful thing. But it's more wonderful than most people think because it doesn't just say you're not condemned. It doesn't just say you've been pardoned. It says something much stronger. He says, now there is no condemnation, which brings us to the last point in the great news. 
Good? Great. Bad? Worse? Good? Great. Now we hit the top. Ready? I can experience true freedom now and forever. I can experience true freedom now and forever. Most of us feel, and listen, correct me if I'm wrong, okay? Most of us feel that when we receive Christ, our sins are pardoned, we're forgiven, okay? We get that. We get, you know, we're all on board with that. Then we have this penchant, this peculiar thing that we do where for the rest of our lives, we try hard to repay him and live a life that we should live and so on. But when we fall back into sin, you know what we feel? What do you feel? We feel condemned. So we wait a little while. God, forgive me. Feel good. Feel great. Living life again, not doing that again, right? And then all of a sudden, we do that again. And what happens now? How do you feel? You feel condemned. And we go back and we go forth. And we go up and we go down. And when I'm faithful and when I'm following perfectly, I feel great. I feel free. I feel God is with me. He's answering my prayer. I'm sure he's answering my prayer. Give me a prayer request. I'll, you know, God, God listens to me. We're friends. And then the next day, you're like... You're hiding. You don't come to church. We don't see you. Where's so-and-so? You know what? Well, they're angry at this, that, the other thing. Now, you know what they probably is? They're under the, they feel under the condemnation of sin, and they don't want to be with God's people. See, that happens a lot of times. It took me a long time to realize that, but I know that happens now. The Bible says there's no more condemnation. It means for the Christian, condemnation does not even exist. It's gone. It's been removed from the realm of even possibility, folks. Now, as soon as I say that, listen, I know. Someone's going to say, well, then why do we ever ask for forgiveness anyway? Okay, oh, great, great message. You know, release us now. We're all hungry, and, and that's the end of the message, and, and let's go. Why do we even have to ask forgiveness? Many of you probably memorized. I bet you a lot of you memorized 1 John 1, 9, right? 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So people go, when they read that verse, and say, well, there it is. There you go. If you sin, you're condemned until you confess your sin, and then you're, you're forgiven. No, no. Other religions may believe that. That is not the gospel. That is not Christianity. Years ago, I was reading that verse devotionally, and it struck me as to what John was saying. John was not saying, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and kind, or he is faithful and merciful to forgive us our sins, although he is. Although he is. No, John says that when he forgives our sins, it goes beyond mercy. It goes all the way to justice. That's why he forgives us. He says he'll be faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Do you know what that means? It means that if you're a Christian and you're in Christ and you come and ask for forgiveness, as Tim Keller wrote, it would be utterly unjust for God to not forgive you. It's almost as if we, we come and, and we've blown it again. There we are. Paul, gotcha. Romans 7, gotcha, man. You know what? You want to do? You don't do? You know the thing you, you don't want to do, you end up doing? It's almost as if the son is standing before the father, and Jesus is our advocate. Before the, he's our high priest. The Bible says he's praying for us. And what Jesus does is our high priest. He stands before the father in heaven, and he doesn't say, you are so merciful, Father. You know what? I know this is the 874th time they've come, but you know what? I'll work with them. Just one more, please. Just one more. Just one, please. See, that's what we think is going on. That's not what's going on. What Jesus is saying is, I have paid for that sin. I've paid for it. Therefore, you must forgive. If you are just, you must forgive. Because if you don't, you're getting two payments, and therefore, embrace this sister of mine. Embrace this young mother. Embrace this young man. Embrace this father. Do you know why? 
Because you need to embrace him or her, not out of mercy, not out of kindness, but because I was their substitute. I was their substitute. When you as a Christian go and ask for forgiveness, you're not saying, Lord, I'm under condemnation, get me out. When, I, when your kid comes to you, your kid you blows up, screams, whatever, calls your name in front of the neighbors, you want to kill them because they embarrassed you or something like that, or they're yelling, you know, in the summer, the windows are open, they start yelling and screaming, and you're like, mm. something like that happens, right? Now, you as a parent, do you write them out of the will? Maybe you do. I mean, maybe that's the trick. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I have something to learn here. But do, do you write them out of the will, or do you say, you know what? You just, you just hurt me. You broke my heart in one way or another. See, you don't disown them. You don't pretend that they're not your children. You love your children. You will, you will stick with your children through thick and thin. That doesn't mean you want to kill them sometimes. You, you need to send them away or remove yourself from them at times. Okay? We're not getting into that. But you're never going to disown them. And I'm sinful. I'm, a, I'm kind of a lousy father compared to... I'm a, I'm a terrible father compared to God. And yet, I would never do that to my kids. Is your father going to do that to you? What do you think? Just throwing it out there. Okay. Do you know, and I really believe this, that most of our troubles, most of your troubles today, are due to your failure to realize the truth of this verse? Most of your problems are due. If you could understand, there is therefore now no condemnation. Think about it. Next time you're in the struggle, next time you're in trouble, next time... You're in some kind of pain. Ask yourself, if I really believed that there was no condemnation for me, if I really believed nothing can separate me from the love of God, if I really believed that, really, really, really believed that to the bottom of my heart, to the bottom of my toes, to the root of my being, would I be reacting differently right now? You know what the answer is? Yeah, you would. You would. When heaven's perspective becomes our perspective, all of a sudden, we become free because we can go to our Father and say, Father, it's me again. But I know you love me, and I know I hurt you, and I want that fellowship to be opened up again between you and me. Because when heaven's perspective becomes our perspective, we are free. Bad news, I stand condemned. Worse, I can't save myself. Good God's provided a way where I can escape condemnation, and the best of all, I can experience true freedom now and forever and begin to become more like Christ because I am secure in his love. See, that's the key. That's what we're going to be unpacking over the next seven weeks.